0: Amen. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, worship team. It has been a delight to serve with these folks all week. Absolutely have been delighted. You know, it's amazing to not only be led by these folks, but just get to know them a little bit in preparation for things and just enjoy these people so much who love Jesus and love leading God's people. And I've loved partnering with Dave and Mike and Richard this week. It's been so good you may think Richard and I spent a lot of time coordinating our messages, but the Holy Spirit's the only one who did work in that regard, and I'm just grateful for the privilege of, of serving uh, with him as, as a co-speaker here this week. You know, I don't know if he's ever felt the need to do damage control in his talks based on what I have said, but I certainly haven't felt that at all. Coming from my direction, if anything, it's been just wonderful, whereas I'm... Part of his great cloud of witnesses cheering him on and just amening the whole way through. It's just been a delight to partner with you. I've heard about Richard for years. He and I speak at some of the same places, but we've never crossed paths. And I I just have really learned to love this brother. And as I've been thinking about him this morning, I've been thinking, there's a man in whom there's no guile. He, he's, he's real, and I'm grateful for that. And to, to serve with this ministry I've heard about for decades and finally be here has been a delight. And all of you, I've had some great conversations, heard what's been going on in your lives. It's been such an encouragement to be here. Well, I thought I would start this time with giving you and all, all an opportunity to ask any questions you have of Richard and me. And we, we've said a lot this week, but I would love to hear... Anything that you have that you're wondering about based on what he and I have said, just leave some time for that. I'm always interested to hear what questions you may have to maybe put an exclamation point on something we said. Do you know the, in the Wesleyan tradition, there were not just preachers, but it's not so much true anymore, but there, there were exhorters. Did you know that? They had exhorters in the Wesleyan tradition where after the preacher got up, the exhorter got up and said, Fred, did you hear what he said? You especially needed to hear that. Wouldn't that be great, Richard, to have an exhorter in the church? <laughs> he was talking to you, Lucy, you know that? And, um, but just just putting an exclamation point on it. So if you have questions or, or uh, anything that, that you want to bring, I just would love for you to have an opportunity to do that. I know that could be, Tough for some folks, but any, anything Richard and I would love to, if, if you have pushback or things you disagree with or didn't understand or didn't like, yeah. I may, be, I may run mics out back. Oh, okay, all right, and I get, could Richard use this one if, if he needs it, this work, guys? Thank you. Anything in light of what he and I have been talking about this week or things you're wondering about?
1: Hey, Eric, do you have the book already out? or? or
0: oh, on 20 things Christians should probably stop saying. No, my dad said to me a couple weeks ago, Eric, if you don't get that thing done soon, you should probably stop saying you're writing that book. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> my dad is always giving me a hard time. He calls me and he says so how's that professor job? Don't tell me you don't have classes today. (laughs) And he does this stuff all the time. And he'll shake my hand and he'll say, ah, yes, the hand of a scholar. And that's that's not a compliment for my dad. Anyway. um. (laughs) Yes, in the back. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, thank you. Thanks for for helping me have an excuse. That's excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. He won't. He won't. I know my dad. This guy. Yes. Uh, yeah, I liked uh, how you pointed out that we're the most common term is that we're saints. Yeah. And in James it says, Wash your hands, you sinners. And yeah. just Could you talk about this in nature, in our new nature? Yeah so I really appreciate the distinction in the, the the Protestant tradition to distinguish between justification and sanctification. I think that's very helpful that we are justified in Christ and we then work out our sanctification, but I also think we can fail to appreciate the reality of being made holy in Christ. It, it's not just justification that has a a finished component to it. And we can overdo that distinction between justification and sanctification as a done thing and an ongoing thing. In that, being made holy is something that has a finished aspect to it as well in Christ. In that, we are set apart, devoted to the Lord as His. And the Holy Spirit now lives in us and has transformed us into new creatures in Christ and saints, set apart ones, holy ones. And so, yes, that has a, what Paul says, living up to what we've already attained to it, and we now are growing in conformity to the character of Christ. What Richard was talking about, fruit of the spirit as a bottom line test of of a leader. You know, I'm serious. I've just been amening like crazy, in my head at least, this week when Richard's preaching because when he says fruit of the spirit, the, the American Church is awarded charisma way more than character, and that that's that's what he's cautioning us and as as Christians, we need to to not just throw people into places of prominence because they're massively gifted or have lots of charisma, but are they showing Holiness. Are they showing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Self-control may be one of the biggest. So I have a friend who has a gift shop and she sells little blocks with the fruit of the spirit on it and they sell out all the time except for one of the fruit of the spirit. You know which one? Self-control. It, 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 nobody ever buys self-control. For some reason, they don't want that on their shelf. It's really interesting, right? But, but yeah, so the holiness that we work out has a finished component in that we are devoted to the Lord. We're, we're, we're taken out of darkness in marvelous light now, and we're devoted to Him as His children, now living up to what we've already obtained. So, so that, that holiness identity is something we grab a hold of
1: and then we live up to that. You want to add anything to that? No, I'm stealing that illustration, though, about the block that doesn't sell. That's beautiful. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I think... Uh, it's, uh, what's significant is we are new in Christ but you know Paul articulates doesn't he in Romans 7 this ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit and very often in evangelical communities it feels to me like we uh, teach people to say no to the flesh without teaching people to say yes to their identity in Christ yeah. and if we could teach the yes we still need to say no but it's a much easier no because the yes makes the makes the flesh that was appealing distasteful. In other words, as I'm I'm more rooted in this identity, I look at that other piece of me uh, with its lust and greed and shame, and I go, yuck. But without the yes, that's all I have. And so we've got to learn to exalt this identity in Christ to set us free from the
0: flesh. That's so good. You know, in the, it's, it's interesting. In the New Testament, you actually have letters written to churches that are primarily struggling with what we call legalism, Galatians, that they're adding to what they have to do. And we have letters addressed to churches that would fall into what we call cheap grace. The, the, the problems continue to be the same. And, and I do think it gets back to a right view of God, not as a cosmic cop or a half-senile heavenly Santa Claus, but Almighty God that we've been talking about this week. I was just talking to a friend. We, were, we went out to dinner with a friend. who was a significant gluten uh, allergy. And we got this, we were, we were just, their family took our family to Hawaii for a week last week. <laughs> and it, that's helped me deal with the envy I have for where Richard gets to wake up every morning. But, but I, we, we got this amazing pie at this restaurant where we were. And she couldn't have any of it. And I didn't see any whiny, poor me. She was just happy we were enjoying it. And I said, I said Linda, you don't seem to have a problem with that. And she said, no, Eric, when, when I don't eat what I shouldn't eat, the, the health I have from it is so worth it. It's not hard for me to say no to it. And that's what you're saying, that you focus on the freedom she has from the effects of the allergy. And... And it's not even a tough thing for her anymore. It doesn't take all this discipline because she has come to realize the benefit of of saying no. Yeah, it's not just the no, it's it's the benefit of, of what that brings. Good stuff. All right, what else? Anything I've else? I've
1: got I've got one outside here in the
0: back. Yes.
1: Hey, Eric. Hey, I have a, a comment and a question. Uh, my dad was a, a pastor, and in regards to explaining um, sanctification and holiness, he was said that glorification is instant and, let me back up, justification is instant and final, sanctification is ongoing, and then glorification is instant and final as well. It's kind of cool. Um, hey, I had a question. Your first day, you, you put a list of different things uh, up on the screen. And I remember image images uh, were th- was the one that stood out to me because of art and such. But wh- I was wondering, what is your favorite on that list? And what was that list? I forgot. I work
0: super hard not to have favorites. I really do. I, I, I'm inclined. So, Obviously, I love images because they awaken in us a, 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 a connection to what we're seeing here. And, and so I love images. I love all of them. And when, so when I teach a course that I teach called The Character of God, I ground our study in attributes because those are those sort of bottom line definitional things. And actually in my passage, oh, there it is. Thanks, guys. There they are. Uh, I grounded an attribute. I make my Character of God students def- uh, memorize 35 definitions of 35 attributes. They think I'm a horrible person. Yes, two former Character of God students back there. Yes. And they're happily married because they took character of God. Look at it. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, and they, they had to memorize 35 definitions of 35 attributes. And, and you guys want to say anything about that, that exercise of doing that? Yeah, they take an exam, and they write it out, and I stand in front and watch them take this exam almost in tears, knowing that it's worshipful for them after the rigor of memorizing them. Yes, Carrie, thank you. Anything else you want to say about it? Uh, you made us rewrite a hymn. That was really fun. Oh, they had to write a hymn based on an attribute, but, yeah. So I mean, one part one fun story is, Carrie and I weren't dating in that class, and then started dating in that class. See? Right. See? The value of theology right there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's, yeah. Good stuff. All right. Eddie, yeah. Uh, on your list of attributes of God, uh, you mentioned that your students aren't always happy with everyone. Uh, yeah. How do you deal with students who have real issues with wrath as being one of the attributes of God? That's a great. I, I do. One of my greatest burdens as, as a teacher and as a theologian is that we don't have this hierarchy of attributes when it comes to God. He's perfect. Everything about him is perfect. And, and so one of my main goals is to help them love and worship and adore everything about God. Not say, man, if, if I were creating God, that wouldn't be on the list but I'm stuck with it, because it's in the Bible. I don't want that sort of mentality when it comes to God. I don't even want that mentality with my wife in in her characteristics, and she's sinful and, and, and finite. Never mind a perfect God. And so I do everything I can to help my students not just understand something like wrath, but love that God hates sin and evil. And the way I do it with wrath is I say, I want you to think of the worst thing that anyone has ever done to you. And they're starting to feel this indignation And this anger. It's a it can be a painful thing. And and I want them to know that whatever that evil or wrong that had been done to them, God hates it too, more than they do. And He opposes sin and evil. And don't you want a God who who hates sin and evil? If you love children, you hate child abuse. And so you have a corresponding godly hatred. For all the love of God that that goes with that, and so I I just I want them to feel a sense of op- opposition to sin and evil, and then know that God affirms that even more than they do in, in their hearts, and that's a good thing. And if really, do you want a God who's passive? We tend to think that. Oh, He just lets bygones be bygones. It doesn't. Matter. And like people say to me, you know, I'm a really patient person. I and then I watch them and I say, you know what? I actually don't think you're patient. I just think you don't care, right? The more you care about sin and evil and injustice, the more patience that you are, are, have to have. And so I want them to realize the, me, the meaning that, that wrath gives to grace and mercy and patience and compassion and all those other things that we value, but actually lose their meaning if God doesn't oppose and hate sin and evil. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't want God in opposition to me, but I want him to oppose arrogance because I, I oppose it, and when I, it's especially directed at me. And so, so I, I just want them to realize how good it is that God is everything he says he is, including ones that... I wrote a book on the jealousy of God because of this. It's one of those attributes we hate, ignore, wish weren't there, but his jealousy for his glory and his, the faithfulness of his people... Augustine said what am I to you God that you would command me to love you and threaten great miseries if I don't why do you care that much about my faithfulness and so so yeah attributes like jealousy wrath even godly hatred vehement opposition are are vital for us to love and worship God for yeah good
1: Richard this one's directed at you Richard you use the term besetting sins and I'm wondering Yes, we all have them, and we need help each of us. But sometimes we might say, well, you need a psychologist or you need that. How can we help our friends with besetting sins? To get rid of? Eric's got a great answer to that question. No. Um, he probably does have a great answer to that question. But I think uh, uh, it's really, really important that we move away from our individualistic and isolationist understanding of faith. Like it's me and Jesus, we're going to get this thing done. Because all of us carry not only besetting sins, but quite often in our lives a blindness to our own besetting sin, right? And so what I need in my life are people who will hold up a mirror to me and say hey, Richard, take a look at this. Because when that happens, I'm at a crossroads where I can either uh, live in denial of that or push back and so remain in my besetting sin, or I can receive that and be transformed. And I would just say, looping back to our conversation about you know powerful leaders in the church and that kind of thing, the trajectory of the last 10 years has been that success breeds isolation. In other words, if somebody's successful in their ministry, uh, the, the leaders who are ostensibly there to hold them accountable are like this. We don't want to hold them accountable because we don't want to rock this boat. It's going too well. And by, by well, they don't mean lives transformed. They mean uh, butts in the pews and money in the bank, right? And it's like, well, now wait a minute. Someone has to be there to hold up to me Uh, my ongoing need for transformation, and if there's nobody there, my blind spots will remain. Uh, So I need people in my life who will function as that mirror. So uh, I think we need to have the courage not only to receive that in our lives, and so model this interdependency, but we also need to have the courage, especially those of us who are conflict-averse, and I'm in that category, we have to have the courage to hold up the mirror to the other and uh, say, hey, buddy, take a look. I mean, there was one staff member one time who's a really wonderful guy, faithful, loyal, hardworking. And there was a moment he got in an argument in the office. And it almost got, it didn't get physical, but it almost got physical. He was so mad, his temper. And so then I, I you know, I called him in the office. I said, hey. You do this to me, I'm going to do this to you. Let me just replay what just happened, right? There's a group of people that were all in ostensibly loving and serving Jesus, and someone said something you didn't like, you pushed back, she pushed back, you would not let it go, and suddenly everyone has stopped work, and they're all afraid. Mm. I go, let's talk about that, and that led to, that was a transformative moment in his life, but it required of me the courage to go, all right, I don't know if you're going to hit me or not, but I'm going to hold up the mirror here so you can see, and then it's between you and Jesus. Eric, you want to follow up with that?
0: Yeah, I, I just want to say we need to love people well enough to, to, to bring a word of rebuke. The, the Bible says that, that the wounds of a friend are healing, and if we're doing it for their good, not just to sh- put them in their place, see, that's the big difference. Like Donna is one of the most masterful confronters I've ever known in my life she kicked the, she was a residence director at wheaton college when we were there and and she kicked the guy out of out of school one time and he went back to his dorm singing her praises as he's packing his bags to leave school they her nickname in the program she teaches in the is the hammer because she's just she doesn't play and but she does it in a way where they have no doubt she's doing it for their good because she loves it it's amazing how she does it because it's not just you need to, it's, it's because I love you, I'm going to make this awkward. And on and the other side of it, we need to invite people into our lives to speak truth. And, and not just, and give them the courage to do it and say, do you see anything in me? Is, is there anything in the way I interact with Donna? Is there, is there anything you're seeing in me? Like oh, my dear friend Dave Talley, we had an elder meeting one time. And, and on the way home, he calls me and he says, Eric. Do you realize how you made Don feel in that meeting tonight? You caught him off at the knees, man. I know you don't even notice because you're like this bull in a china shop, but you got to call Don and apologize. And I did. And, and I said, oh, Dave, I didn't even realize. And I called him, and Don was hurt by this. And, and so we, we've got to invite people, not just once, but in an ongoing way, because it takes a lot of guts to say hard things. We'd rather just skim along the surface like snorkelers instead of scuba diving, like water skiers instead of scuba diving.
1: Well, and this, by the way, is, this is why it's so important as we re-engage and re-enter that you not continue worshiping just online, but that you find yes. a community where there's actual people and eye contact and, and human contact, because if you're just online, you don't get, you can't get that. You can't. You can get this generic thing, but you can't get the presence of Christ incarnate, embodied th- through relationship that is so, so vital. Uh, we, the, the anticipation from church growth people is that 30% of people are having so much fun worshiping online that they're never coming back. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm like this, well, you may never come back, but it's gonna stunt your growth because without the community, you don't have that person holding up the mirror. So I encourage you to go back to church. <laughs> in, in local
0: church context, see, we tend to think of discipleship as counseling and coffee. But church, the other C, is, is the context of all of that. In, in a counseling meeting and over coffee, I can tell you all kinds of things about how I'm doing that you don't know any better, right? But if you watch someone in the context of, of their life, the, the flakiness, the inconsistency, the rudeness, well, whatever it is, now you have insight that they're not feeding you. In the local church context forces things to the surface that otherwise just won't come to the surface. And the great thing about it is, it, unlike your buds at Starbucks, you don't get to pick who's there. Trust me, as, as leaders, if you gave us the opportunity to exclude certain people from our church, well, 25% are gone immediately, right? But that's, that's the beauty local That's the difficulty and the beauty. You don't get to pick them. It, 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 they come to the local church as your family, like your earthly family, right? You got that uncle that never came to the reunions, right? But he's your uncle, right? And so he's family. And so, so that's one of the powerful things about the local church. You don't get to design it. God does, and it pushes all kinds of buttons in you that need to be pushed. Beautiful. One more question, comment. Yes. Hi, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here and for teaching us this week. And I really, really appreciate hearing all the different attributes of God and the variety that there are and about our identity in Christ and how we need to really focus on that. And looking at these attributes, it makes me think that God really wants us to know him. He, he shows himself in so many ways that he wants to be known and he wants us to re, uh, relate with him. So I wonder for each of you personally, how do you hear God's voice in your lives? Well, I I hear God's voice, I would say, primarily through his word as the spirit illumines and transforms and in the context of his people. But I think we grow, which would include the idea of hearing from God, by doing nine things. (laughs) I'm serious. Word, worship, prayer, fellowship, service, Proclamation, giving, missions, living, and suffering, all in the context of the local church. So I don't even want to make the local church number 10 because it's the context for all of it, and those all work interdependently. So I devote myself to those nine things that have other aspects to it. So what about the Lord's Supper? Well, that's part of the fellowship, right? right? What about baptism? Yeah, it's part of the fellowship. But there are other things too, but it's those nine with, with subcategories within them as well that I, I devote myself to and I grow in my int- intimacy with God and the ability to discern his, his presence.
1: Well, it's very similar, right? This is a, that's that rule of life thing that was available. You guys gobbled it up. Uh, there's none left you can get them at churchbcc.org but that I think there's 10 on there mm. but one of the, one of the ones that's really important to me is Sabbath mm. like a rhythm because I often find my wife and I have a Sabbath pattern uh, not every week but most weeks where you know we're, we go for a hike in silence right mm. going up and on the way down we talk about God, what we were thinking it. about and what you know what did God say to us and I often find that it's because of other habits, word, solitude, suffering, prayer, etc because of other habits, that sets the table for these moments for God to speak to, to me. And pretty, like, I know God has spoken to me, and I know, oh, this is a step I'm, I'm needing to take. And that often comes when I provide that space for God to, to speak, and I often don't go out with an agenda, like, I gotta hear from God on this thing, I just go out, but God speaks. But you can't, that's not instantly available. It's not like instant coffee where you just say, okay, I'm going to, you know, four miles, God, you got, you got two, two miles uphill to speak so that I have something to say on the way down. That is a byproduct of those other habits, nine or rule of life, whatever you do. But that soil of your heart has to be prepared. I would say that that's really, really, really important. And then God has guided us uh, in really clear ways when we were at a crossroads. I, I desperately wanted to go to uh, seminary in Portland, not Los Angeles, because I'm not a big fan of Los Angeles. And, uh, but when we prayed about it, my wife and I, we both knew, oh, Talbot Seminary, that's where you're going to go. You're going to go there. And we knew, and we went. And you've got you to follow when the wind of the Spirit speaks. But I, I, I believe that if you ask God, God will speak to you, and you'll... God's not hiding his will. So if we, if, we, if we want to know God's will, we can pray and God will show us. All right. Brother, no, turn it over.
0: thank you so Thanks, much. Buddy. You're the man. All right. Uh, I, I do a question and answer time every time I haven't prepared every, anything. So no, that's, that's not true at all. I've, I've, I've definitely prepared. So if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, we're going to finish our time in this journey with Moses as God meets with him again on the mountain amazing grace. The people have rebelled after all that they've gone through. They worship a golden calf. Moses is desperate in ministry and in life and in confidence, and he no doubt is at the point of despair, and he says, you've got to show me who you are. You've got to reveal your glory to me, and that's exactly what God does for him. Now, it's fascinating the way we get to this revelation of his glory Because first God says this, he says, please show me your glory. And what does he say in verse 19 of chapter 33? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. So he's given him the divine name Yahweh at the burning bush, Yahweh. And it means this eternal great I am who's also the God of the covenant, the God who's faithful to his promises and he's with you as well as well above you in his holiness. And so he says, I'll proclaim my name to you because that's the way he's going to show his glory by proclaiming his name. And what does he say? you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live you know one of the hardest for years I, i have struggled with things in the bible and then the lights will go on and i'll say oh and one of those things was i had a really hard time with god not letting moses in the promised land because he apparently bashed this rock with something in his heart that was counterproductive to what god was wanting to do among the people I'm thinking, yeah, but all the good he did, Lord, he can't go into the, the, Moses can't go into the promised land. And I remember I was studying one time the transfiguration where Jesus reveals himself, the glory he always had veiled in flesh, as the Christmas hymn says veiled in flesh the Godhead see well the veil is lifted for a moment and the glory of Christ is revealed to just the three disciples who got to go and he meets with who? Elijah and Moses Moses gets to be there, the representative of the the law and the prophets. It's just amazing. So Moses didn't get to go to the promised land then, but he did when he met with the Christ, the the Messiah who came. That's a better time to enter the promised land than when the Israelites did. So there he is. He's, He's meeting with Elijah and Moses and Moses here is told by God no one could see me and live if you if you saw me the way you're asking Moses if you really want to see my glory you'll you'll evaporate you'll disintegrate you'll be completely annihilated knowing though there would come a day when we could behold the glory of God and live. And it's in the one who is the author of life, Jesus, when we see the glory of God in his face. But that day was in the future, so now the way God does it is to proclaim his name for Moses. And then he's still revealing his glory in this way, ultimately in Jesus, but still in the proclamation of his name. And that's what he does. He passes by, and a little bit of what's left after he passes by is what Moses is able to experience. But the revelation Moses is asking for of the glory of God takes place now in chapter 34. Watch. Verse 1, Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I think that's hilarious. I'm sorry, I do. You broke the first ones, you're making the second ones. <laughs> I just think that's funny. God had to put, Moses do. he broke them, but God said, you know, the ones you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. And here it comes. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him And proclaim. Now, what we're about to read is, I believe, the most concentrated, sacred description of God's character in the whole Old Testament. So much so that it's used a dozen times after this in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when God wants to get across who He is. And here it is. There's a sacredness that I feel like we should all take off our sandals and get on our faces do that at least in your heart here's what God says to show Moses and us his glory the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious generation. And listen to Moses' response. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Lord, please help us to learn right along with our brother Moses about you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just walk through this incredible description of God's attributes. Now, We've been focusing on what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God. His holiness, his otherness, his glory, these things that make you need a broom, right? And, and what we need to start off by saying, though, as we dive into a study of what theologians call the incommun- the communicable attributes, the ones we, we possess to some degree that we just heard from God but let's not overdo that distinction even and let's not think we don't still need a broom when we think about God's faithfulness and compassion and love and patience and grace we still do need a broom every time we think about anything about God especially when you consider the fact that God's attributes are always interdependently working Try as much as a finite creature possibly can to always think about the attributes of God as perfectly, harmoniously, necessarily working together. God never stops being gracious so he can express wrath. God never turns off his wrath valve so he can open up his grace valve. That's not how it works. You can't even understand grace without wrath. It makes no sense. And there's nowhere the the unity of God's attributes comes into clearer view than on the cross of Christ. This is a great concern I have that not just we get God's character comprehensively as we possibly can, but the gospel as comprehensively as we possibly can. I so frequently hear the cross spoken of as God's love, which it most certainly is. But do you know it is also just as much a display of God's wrath. It's a display of his justice. It's a display of his holiness and his mercy and compassion and grace to be sure. But what's happening on the cross is a display of the character of God that is the greatest and clearest in all of human history. Even more than this description because this description points us ultimately to Jesus in our place as the gospel's being accomplished for us. So let's walk through this one at a time. Notice he says Yahweh twice. And then he says, before he gets to all these definitional attributes of who he is, he says, I'm a God who is these things. So make sure we include everything we know about God into these. These aren't sort of the the most important ones, or the, the ones we like most, or our favorite attributes. No, they all need to be seen in light of all of who God is, but here they are nevertheless highlighted. And the first thing it says is he's merciful and gracious. Th- this beautiful word, which I-, I think can be well translated also, compassion. See, this is a word that is so for us and with us and doing what we need for him to do. You know, I actually find it pretty easy to love people generally. I do. God's just given me a heart for for people, I love people, even even difficult people. I tend to bless your heart, I, and I, I can I can typically find it easy to generally love people. My wife is even more that way. We'll drive by someone running who looks like it's the first time they've ever gone for a run, and she says, "Good for you, sir!" Not out the window, but just some. She's good for you, sir. Oh, your heart is thanking you right now. She'll say she's just so kind, and so. And she, but she's different than I am in this I generally love people Donna someone who's constantly thinking And what can I do out of that love To help them In their need practically She wants to roll up her sleeves I remember one time my, my, my mother-in-law came over to the table With a big bowl of mashed potatoes I love mashed potatoes She came over to the table And she, she, gave, she was giving it to me and I said, oh, thank you. And I took some mashed potatoes. And she's going, I'm giving this to you to pass. And it was just here. I wasn't thinking about anybody else at the table. Just got mine. And, 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 but I, I, I was disconnected, right? But when God says he's compassionate, he's merciful and gracious, the, the word here is literally his guts are overturned toward us. That's what's going on here. It's not some detached general kind of love. It's love in the streets. It's love with its sleeves rolled up. It's love getting its hands dirty and getting its hands even bloody. And that's what happens literally with Jesus. God loves us with with it in the streets meeting our needs love. It's not automatic withdrawal. We automatically withdraw our our giving. That's what we do. And I, I have a concern about that. I don't even think about it. I don't even feel it, right? God loves in a way where it's present and it's active and it's conscious and it's costly. And that's a love we can rest in. And then it says he's merciful and gracious. And then it says he's slow to anger. This is an incredible description of God. Slow to anger. And in other words, when God finally shows anger, notice it doesn't say he doesn't get angry. There is a righteous anger that's right, but it says he's slow to get there. It means he doesn't have a hair trigger. It doesn't mean he, it means he never flies off the handle. He never regrets showing anger too soon or in an unwarranted way. When God shows anger, it's high time he did. And like I said at one point this week, the frustration of godly people in the Bible is not the wrath of God. It's that he doesn't, he doesn't express it more or sooner. I, I love this attribute of God, in part because I have, one of my besetting sins that I battle every day is impatience, and, and anger that comes out of that, and, and I've gotten way better. Ask Donna, but man, my mother said I was born like this. I, I believe we can be wired in sinful ways, and she said when I was a toddler, if my blocks would fall, I'd never cry. I'd hit something, always. Ah! And, and I remember one time, I could give you so many examples of of not being like God in this, that I so love this attribute of God. One time we were driving, uh, we were in grad school, and we were driving before the sun came up on a January morning in Chicago. It was below zero, and I was going to preach at a church in the city, and we're on the Eisenhower Expressway, and I'm always in a bad mood in the morning, always. I never wake up happy. Yay. No, it's like, good morning. What's so good about it Is, is my inclination, and and so I'm not in a great mood because it's really early and it's cold and we have a convertible in Chicago with holes in it and that's making me angry. I have a Chicago Tribune stuffed in the holes in the convertible top and, and we've got mittens and coats on because the wind's whipping around even though the heat's cranked and I'm mad about that and, and I remembered I forgot as something I wanted to use as an illustration in the sermon and that's ticking me off and then I'm memorizing a portion of scripture That Donna's helping me with the Bible's open on her lap and I'm driving memorizing scripture and have you ever memorized and for some reason you just insist on inserting a word in the verse that isn't there even no matter how many times you remind yourself it's not there you just keep sticking it in there I kept doing this with this verse before I was doing it in the car but now again in the car and I think it was the fourth or fifth time I remember it was the word that the word that was not in this verse and I kept putting it in anyway it was about the fourth or fifth time I put the word that in this verse. that I got so ticked. I punched the windshield and it shattered. Yeah, yeah. So I said, oh, I can't believe I just did that. I'm an idiot. I turned to Donna. I said, you married an idiot. See, I'll always find a way to blame it on Donna, no matter what happened. And let me just give it to a marriage seminar in twenty seconds. You ready? How do you think she handled? Here, here's what she had every right to say: Yes, you are an idiot. Uh, she she had a right to say, we're in grad school. You know how much a windshield costs. We don't have the money to replace that. Ever since I've known you when we met at 16, you, you've had this kind of way of reacting. When are you going to grow up? You're in seminary studying theology, and you're going to preach a sermon at a church this morning, and you just busted our windshield out of your childish anger. When are you going to grow up? She had every right to say that. Do you know what she said? How's your hand? How's your hand? She said, "Here's your dignity and manhood back. Here, here you go. I'll, I'll give you a chance to to, to to recover from this, right? Are you dating anyone? You on the end? You dating anyone? Tell me your name. You dating anyone? Yeah, you are. What's her name? Joyce. Joyce. I don't know if Joyce is the one for you, Reed. <laughs> but one of the things you may want to do is put her in that passenger seat." In my story, and imagine you doing that. And if you could imagine her saying, How's your hand? instead of you, idiot, she may be the one for you. Um, But that's exactly what I need, right? But my point is, God's never done that. God's never expressed anger and said, What did I do? Isn't that wonderful? If anything, like we've said, it's the opposite problem with God, with godly people. They say, Lord, why are you waiting so long to show your anger? And he's patient in this way, right? And then it says, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This word steadfast love is one of those Hebrew words that we just don't have an English word for. This word hesed is this wonderful, pursuing, relentless, uh, intentional, strong, never to be denied love. One of my colleagues used to say it's God's refusal to ever wash his hands of his unfaithful bride. It's this covenant love that is strong and pursuing and it's awesome and it's jealous for that matter. And he won't just let his wayward bride continue in her waywardness. He loves her too much. And he's faithful. He always keeps his promises. Oh, do we need to hear that? When there's so much need for more integrity, even among leaders and people who should know better, we have a faithful God that we follow, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And then it says he keeps this kind of love. He keeps it going. It's not a a passing thing. He keeps it for thousands. And don't take that thousands too literally. It's a big corporate idea. It's exactly what Richard was talking about this morning. That we do, if there's, I think if I had to pick one thing in the American mentality that unChristian, it's an individualistic mentality. We were made for God and we were made for one another. We're intended to grow together. And so it's this big corporate massive idea. Yes, God doesn't love the corporate without loving the individual. But the the focus in the Bible is on the the big and the corporate and the communal and the relational. And that's what's going on here with this thousands. It's beautiful. And, And then it says, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I want you to bask in this description of God's forgiveness. It means to wipe away. It means to, to cast away all of our sin. Now, he uses three Hebrew words here. Avon, pasha, and chatah. And this word avon is pollution. It's iniqu- Have you ever sinned and literally felt like you need to take a shower even though there was nothing physical in the sin? Just something you said makes you feel dirty? That's an aspect of sin, a pollution, an iniquity, right? And, and the transgression is taking God's law and just breaking it over your knee and throwing it away. And sin is one you probably heard most, missing the mark of God's perfection, his holiness. But what, what I want you to know is going on here is if you're a writer of Hebrew and you wanted to explain sin as comprehensively as you could, you'd do it by grabbing these three words and putting them all together. So what he's saying here is God's forgiveness is exhaustive. It's comprehensive. I believe Satan gets on, what's he called? The accuser of the brethren. And if he can get you to believe that Jesus forgives 98% of your sin, Satan wins. He wins. You got to work off that other 2%. Come on, you're a self-respecting American. You don't get what you don't work for, do you? you do that's what grace is it's God for you in Christ not with your effort after you sort of make up the difference he forgives comprehensively and Satan will get on us all the time maybe it's for something you did in high school that still haunts you or on your way here this morning I don't know what it is but you need to know how comprehensive and exhaustive and glorious God's forgiveness is and live in that, and rest in that, but then it takes a turn that 's a little upsetting, maybe, but he doesn 't clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children 's children to the third and fourth generation, so he 's saying, "Oh yes, I, I forgive exhaustively i 'm slow to anger i mean i 'm more patient than you could ever imagine or be I am." I am loving with a relentless love, but I don't clear the guilty. And as a matter of fact, my judgment can be seen perpetuated through generations when that sin is perpetuated through generations. I can point out several sins that I see generationally in my family that has found expression and found the consequences. But we're not stuck there. You need to read Ezekiel 18 in a complimentary way that say, says the son does not die for the sins of the father. Oh, it's often a cycle we get in, but God is telling us our job in our generation is to break those cycles of sin, to break the perpetuation of the sin and its consequences that come with it. And that's what we're called to. You're never stuck. You're never stuck because of some sort of genetic thing or the way you think you're wired or experiences you've had or abuse you've suffered or a pattern of sin you've given into over time, you are never stuck. The gospel and the power of the spirit is always sufficient to pull you out of sin and darkness, always, you're never stuck. And so what's the difference between those who receive exhaustive forgiveness and those who are punished for their sin? I don't want to overcomplicate it. Every time this passage is quoted in the Bible, it's quoted in the context of an invitation to receive God and his forgiveness. And the difference between those who are forgiven and those who aren't are those who are forgiven are those who ask to be forgiven by a gracious God. Don't despise the simplicity of the gospel. It's really that simple. That's why kids at Redwood get it every time they come, because it doesn't take a PhD to get it. It takes a humble heart that God has worked in, getting us to the end of ourselves and to the foot of the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know he needs to save you, and you go nowhere else but to him. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need it. We're a people who are easily distracted and diluted and fall into idolatry. Even though we have seen how sin never keeps its promises, we often continue to believe those promises anyway. Lord, you always keep your promises. Would you help us to uh, so long to know you and be found in you and have intimacy with you that we will see sin for what it is. We'll see life apart from you for what it is and want nothing more than to find life in you. Lord, thank you for the good things we've been able to think about together this week. I pray for everyone here that we would all go deeper with you. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted you in saving faith, I pray this would be the morning. And if that is you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you now? If you want to trust Jesus for the first time in saving faith, would you raise your hand so I can trust? I can pray for you? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way you change us. Sometimes from darkness to light, sometimes in ways that we even find imperceptible, but end up having a cumulative effect over time where your surprising work is glorious to behold lord thank you for the way you've worked for generations in this place thank you that you're still working and we can be confident of that that every time we open your word and depend on the spirit and collectively seek to know you that you love to answer those prayers and those longings with your presence Lord, thank you for the joy of being your people. And I pray you'd continue to work and show us as we head home tomorrow what this means in the daily, on the Tuesdays, and every other day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.